Well, please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn in them to the book of Colossians. Should be a well-worn section of your Bible. You can remember, oh, 20-some years ago when our church walked through Ephesians. Uh, By the end of it, Ephesians almost fell out of the binding of my Bible. Uh, It was an easy thing to find, but a hard thing to hold together uh, just from the use. That may be true for you with Colossians as well. All right. Colossians 3.16, we have been working our way through very slowly, perhaps painstakingly for some of you through this section, um, to just unpack, particularly because it addresses the whole church, starting in verse 11 of chapter 3, with just all that God is calling us to. So verse 11 opens with that explosion or ignition of, Christ is all. And in all, and dwelling in all, and working in all. And so there aren't differences that we dwell on. We don't separate into little cliques and pockets, but we are united in an incredible way. Verse 15 is a pivotal one because it talks about the love that is to be central, the greatest commandment, and the fulfilling of that, and how we fulfill it within a particular local body. Because the word of Christ dwelling in us is making us ever more loving individuals. And then back to verses 12, 13, and 14. The results of that are that the gospel and the word of Christ dwelling in us help us to show supernatural compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearance. And perhaps one of the most powerful in the body of believers, forgiveness in vastly greater ways toward each other than other humans do. All of this producing, now verse 15, the other one was supposed to be 14, the peace of Christ permeating all of us in an incredible way so there's not conflict and tension and competition, but this incredible peace filled with gratitude as verses 15, 16, and 17 all stress at the end of them. All of this at the end of verse 15, bringing us, 14, sorry, bringing us together, binding us together in an eternal bond in God's perfect harmony. So verse 16, we've really camped on. This is our third Sunday on one verse. Won't always do that, but I see it as an immensely important and pivotal verse for the church. First and foremost, the word of Christ, the Bible, the scriptures, God's holy words are to be dwelling in us. They are to be dwelling richly, like a rich, full part of our body life. And we ran through a bunch of reasons a few Sundays ago. The word of Christ is foundational to be saved. We don't believe unless we hear the word of Christ. It's foundational in our whole sanctification. It's a huge way in which God reveals himself to us. And I've added two quotes that have come across since we walked through this list that I'll interject here. First, by the late Tim Keller, Jesus Christ is the word of God because no more comprehensive, personal, and beautiful communication of God is even possible. And then Kenneth Wiest, he, God, can efficiently talk to us to the extent to which we know the word. That is the language he uses. And then number four, that permeates our, our knowing of Christ, our experiencing of him, and then lots of other reasons. It's the way we're kept spiritually alive. 
It's sufficient for every need. It's powerful. It's a weapon against the evil forces. It's truth. It's wisdom. It's eternal. It's perfect. It's our authority. There are lots of other things that we could add in there. All to just build the case. The word of Christ is to dominate us because through that we experience Christ. So many blessings that come through that. Colin Smith, God's word does God's work. When you see this and believe it, you will put the scripture at the center of your life. I would say that's the way he's saying the word will dwell richly in you and in your ministry or in your church body, affecting everything that we're doing on an individual level and corporately. As the word of Christ takes hold of us, we take hold of Christ and Christ takes over us. We experience the person of Christ through the word of Christ by the power of the Spirit of Christ. So Wearsby's quote again that I've shared with you numerous times. When the child of God looks into the word of God and, I'm going to interject, truly, spiritually sees the Son of God, he is changed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. The more richly the word dwells in us, the greater our spiritual growth, the more intense everything in verses 12 through 16, really in all of Colossians, the more intensely we experience all of that. And then the next line in verse 16, the more we teach and admonish each other in wisdom using that word of Christ. So a couple of Sundays ago, we just talked about some practical implications. Every Sunday that we gather here, we're in this service being taught and admonished in many ways through the word of Christ. Begins with our call of worship. It goes all the way through our benediction. It's woven into all of our songs, all of our prayers, all of our scripture reading, and all of our preaching. And then in smaller subsets through the week, we need that weekly gathering together that rejuvenates us. And then those smaller subset gatherings in all kinds of different ways, from life groups to dinners for eight, to having people over, to whatever it might be, and then getting down even more specific during the week, and sometimes on Sunday mornings, one-to-one interactions, face-to-face, close-knit within our families, within our households, with close friendships. And we kind of then spent a good part of our sermon just thinking particularly about how important each of us, how important it is that each of us has a handful of especially close deep, long-lasting relationships in which we and another believer are particularly open, raw, honest with each other and real, seeking to push each other further and further along into loving Christ, living for him, conforming to him, and we do that faithfully through the many varying seasons of each of our lives. One man or one woman with another man or another woman sharpens, equips, in a particularly refining way, perhaps even more significant than many of the other things. So summarizing all of that point of teaching and admonish, Colin Smith says, first of all, next time you have the opportunity to help a friend who is in great spiritual need, and I'm going to inject here, or just simply to infuse your own walk with God, consider taking a book of the Bible, reading it together, section by section, believing, applying, and repenting as you go. Plant the seed of the word in each of you, water it with your prayers, and watch what happens. He goes on to note, and he was a pastor for 30 years, two things he observed. First, 
Where there has been lasting life change, the common factor is the word of God has had significant entrance into a person's life. And where godly change has failed to get started or has slowly unraveled, the common factor is that change has been attempted without significant engagement in the scriptures. So, if someone approaches you and says, hey, you want to open the word together on a regular basis and let's just dive in to see what God has to say. Would you make space in your life for that? And watch what God does when two believers huddle over his word, let it dwell richly in them, pray for each other through that, for the way that he sanctifies and grows us. One closing thought on this, for all of us who are wanting to grow, perhaps be healed from wounds, perhaps in other ways have things addressed, overcome a sin, whatever those things are, if we are not steeping ourselves in the word of God, we are taking a path, whatever other counseling, whatever other help, whatever other books, whatever other voices, if it's not steeped in the word of God, if the word of God is not dwelling richly in that counseling, we're ultimately pursuing an outcome that will never be truly achieved. The word of God alone has the power to do that. Today, we come in verse 16 still, to a third effect of the word of Christ or, or another effect of the word of Christ and how it outworks. And this time it's in singing. The point is the richer the word of Christ is dwelling in a body of people, the more they will sing and in individual believers. That the word in us generates songs to Christ, about Christ, for Christ. God shows us here that he loves and cherishes singing that it is a high priority to him, and he gives no indication that musical ability plays a role. None. It seems irrelevant to him. I'll hammer that again later. <laughs> so, whole sermon on singing? Yes, could have done two. There's a bunch left on a page that someday I may come back to with you. Maybe not. We'll see. But let's ask the Lord now for helping us to conform to his will in this third and last section of verse 16. So Father, again, we come and acknowledge that we see this passage as breathed out by you, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, and that you have breathed it out for it to be profitable for us to make our lives more what you've created them to be. So we pray, Lord, that through this, you will teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we will be more complete in Christ's likeness through this and equipped for every good work. Today, Lord, help us to connect our singing to our Savior, both now and forever, to the praise of your name. Amen. So verse 16 well, verse 16c starts with just that concept of singing. But before we unpack that, it's interesting, I think, to note some nuances. So Colossians and Ephesians are very similar in many, many ways. We've gone to Ephesians over and over and over as we walk through Colossians. Here we're going to zero in a little more precisely just so you can see the, the robustness of what's being communicated here. So in your Bibles, you can, they're a couple pages apart, and you can probably leaf back and forth together. I just tried to create a slide where you could see that. So Colossians, 
3 calls the word of Christ to dwell in us. Ephesians 5 calls for us to be filled with the Spirit. In one sense, those are saying the same thing. Like the Spirit works through the word. The Spirit is who reveals Christ to us and empowers us in that way. And, and so it's just a beautiful picture of how those combine. Then you can see the slight differences in wording that Colossians 3 deals more with separating out teaching and singing, it seems, whereas Ephesians, Paul combines them together and speaks of it all as addressing one another, the way you communicate with one another. And then the last part of Colossians 3.16 has to do with thankfulness, and Ephesians 5 adds even more to that when Paul writes that, adds also that you're to do all this thanking in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, will show up in Colossians 3.17. And he adds then a whole new phrase that it isn't in Colossians at all, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The other perhaps helpful glimpse here would be to look at how Colossians 3.16 is translated by each of the groups that have devoted bazillions of hours to bringing the Greek as accurately to us in English as we can. So we typically use that top one, the ESV. You can see in the NASB the, the nuances and the differences, like they put with all wisdom ahead of teaching and admonishing, and then they connected teaching and admonishing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Like that's the way we teach and admonish. So the three songs we sang we taught and admonished each other and ourselves as we were singing them. And then singing with thankfulness is really connected there. New King James, you can see that we had teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then rather than singing with thanksgiving or thankfulness, singing with grace in your hearts. So we're going to stay with the ESV, but you can see that even all of these key thoughts... Uh, that are so rich that it's hard to know fully exactly the nuances of how each is modifying or strengthening or elaborating on another. But all of this, if we go back to just the idea of singing, it's similar to teaching and admonishing that we talked about. There's a private aspect of it. We're to sing in our alone. We're to sing in our hearts. We're to sing in our uh, cars, in our showers. It's my best singing in our cubicles, uh, when we're out on walks, like songs should be pouring through us as the word of Christ is pouring through us. Our singing shouldn't only be in private though, nor just in congregational singing, but Sunday morning is, should be an overflow of Monday through Saturday. Now interestingly here, whether it's all the translations or whether you compare Colossians and Ephesians, the same three words show up. Psalms, and Kevin gave us a quick definition. We needed to communicate a little bit better on, on uh, what we were each going to talk about. But you've got a picture. It's, I think this is referring to the 150 songs, and technically there are more because there are many other woven throughout, particularly the Old Testament. But some even believe that there were songs like in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, that that was a song, a hymn, a, a praise that was sung that's just God has made his inspired word. So the Psalms are our starter kit, our foundation of songs. They're the ones that teach us how to write all our other songs. 
They're the ones that God wrote. They're the ones that he inspired through David and Moses and Korah and many others in Israel. And now, for 3,000 years and more, God has had these psalms sung to him. And he has loved it and embraced it. It's to his honor and delight. So, I think the purest meaning is the whole psalm. And sadly, in the translation from Hebrew in the book of Psalms to English, we have pretty much entirely lost all the, the, the structure, lost the rhythm, lost the uh, alliteration, lost all of those things. Like even Psalm 119 that has 26 stanzas, each that has eight verses, each that has every verse in the Hebrew starting with that same letter. We've lost all of that. We have no rhythm. We have no cadence. It's very challenging for us in English to put these psalms into uh, lyrical form in ways that are singable for us. It's really a sad aspect of being English speakers. The words are still there, and certainly they're significant. And we read the psalms, and we teach about the psalms, but we don't nearly sing them in the American church like we should, like I think God is calling us to here. Now, we sing portions, like today, Psalm 24, and then after the message here, we'll sing a portion from Psalm 130. But they're just portions, and even then in the English, often other thoughts are added, and other thoughts are left out. So even there, we're getting thoughts from God, but often combined with thoughts from man as well that seek to honor God. Sometimes we take just a line. So like Psalm 103 opens with, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then we sing songs that are titled that way or have those, that kind of a line in it. Uh, Psalm 42, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you is a chorus uh, that we came up with 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Sometimes it's even a word. Like Martin Luther took Psalm 46 and the mention of fortress in it and wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. So psalms can teach and instruct and be a part of our singing even when we don't have every part of them easily put to music. But I'm also thankful that there are people today in our era who are working on putting these to music. In fact, if you just Google some of this stuff, psalms put to music, you will see a number. Now, you have to be careful that they're really true to Scripture and to a solid translation of Scripture. Um, but uh, just yesterday I saw a Spotify playlist of 56 psalms put to music. Um, and there are others who have written, there's a group that has written all 150 to music. So, not always easy to sing, but God here is saying, this is part of what I want you to sing to me that honors and glorifies me. Secondly is hymns. And again, we typically think of songs that have been around for hundreds of years. And that is a part of them. Most of the style then was hymns. Certainly from the Reformation on, Hymns have been a centerpiece of the church's music. A hymn we might think of as being more formal, more structured, more patterned, and often zeroing in on a particular aspect, like faith, or prayer, or love, or devotion, or warfare. 
Um, and so they help us, they teach us, and then when we sing them over and over, they remind us of tremendous theology and truths. They're not in themselves, most of the time, the pure words of God, at least in longer thoughts, but they point us toward those truths, and hopefully as we sing them, they help us think of those kinds of things. But I also want to note, and I think it's important for us, there's lots of hymns being written today. So don't just think what's in the hymnal. Think anything that has that kind of structure. We sing lots of them today. There's many that are giving great gifts to the church of hymns that are to be sung. And many of them are very gospel-centric. And some of them, many of them, are more gospel-centric than the old ones. Like even today when we sang Psalm 24, inje- I don't have the words with me, but injected into the middle of that are some gospel truths that aren't in Psalm 24. But they help. We've got the New Testament now that can speak into that and help us see it and understand it more vividly. So don't just think hymns old. Think any of the structured, strong proclamations of truth put to music. Now, spiritual songs seems to be the broad category, like everything else just kind of goes into that. But I think this word spiritual is significant here. In other words, there's a lot of songs that are called Christian that sound more like a boyfriend and a girlfriend talking back and forth to each other than they do about us relating with God. But this seems to be where our praise songs, our choruses, other kinds of things, country music uh, might fit in. The, the point of it being that there are lots of other styles or lots of other ways that we can sing if they are spiritual in their nature. So Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well as they talked about true worship and what it entails. Jesus emphasized God is spirit and then he emphasized twice we're to worship, singing being a part of that, certainly many other things as well that the most significant thing about a spiritual song is what's happening in our heart and why we are express what we are expressing to the Lord through that. So, to the emotion-driven Corinthian church, or Corinth Bible as I like to refer to it, they had to be reminded by Paul, speaking personally, testimonially, I'm not just going to sing these sounds and I'm not just going to sing these feelings That may just ramble all over. I'm going to sing with my spirit. I'm going to sing with my mind. Those are a very intentional part of the way that we sing honoring songs to God. So all of this, it seems to say that God loves for us to sing. And loves for us to sing a variety of kinds of songs. Churches tend to settle into their own liturgies. But for us to be cognizant, aware that we are to be doing all of these kinds of songs to our God and beware of being critical of other styles that we don't personally uh, feel drawn to or think are as good if they fall within biblical boundaries of expressing truths to God. All genres, it seems, that are spiritual and truthful honor and please God, it's stunning to me that he loves country, but he does. 
the last part of verse 16, believe it or not, we are landing, verse 16 today, that God isn't done yet. That there's another line, and we've noted it at the end of verse 15. It's here in verse 16. It's going to be again at the end of verse 17, so we'll just touch briefly on it today. But with thanksgiving, <clears throat> um, sorry, lost my place, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, that could be how we let the word of Christ dwell in us. That could be how we teach and admonish with thankfulness. It seems most likely, especially in its placement here, that it's connected more directly to the singing, that we are to sing out of thankfulness, we're to sing to God, and we're to sing in our hearts that ultimately flows out into our lips. So Psalm 100 is one illustration of this. Starts with just make noise to God. That broadens it for all of us that don't feel we're very musical. God just wants noise that's directed to him, that's driven by joy with him, but that we come into his presence with singing and then even more specifically entering those gates with thanksgiving and then into the courts with praise. Um, just how crucial and important thanksgiving is right at the front of our singing. We sang it today. It should always be the way that we sing songs. So David Garland, our worship or our singing should acknowledge that God is God even in the gloom of pain, suffering, and failure. Worshippers are not well served by a steady diet of melancholy. Let me interject here, pause. I know there's a lot of blue words to read yet. There is place for lament and sadness and songs. There are psalms that end without necessarily turning this celebratory spirit back to the Lord. But I think his steady diet is important there. God has broken into our sorrow and bestowed on us such a glorious destiny that it should evoke a joyous thrill. Our worship should reflect the good news that we have been redeemed and we should express our deepest gratitude to God. Gavin Ortland, urging Christians to practice what he calls intentional gratitude. Most of us tend to see the glass as half empty in our lives. Our attention is instinctively drawn to what we lack and what we wish was different about our lives. But when we practice gratitude, the opposite happens. Our attention is drawn to the blessings in our lives, especially those that we tend to take for granted. In other words, as hard and pain-filled as our lives are under the curse, there is a greater gift from God, greater gifts from God than our grief that should evoke gratitude. It's not always easy to thank God for the hard things, though I heard testimony from somebody today or this week of going through something for which as was incredibly hard, but I would not go back and undo. But sometimes in the midst of it, we can forget that. And so songs help us even to remember, to refocus. I call it recalibrate our hearts and our minds to the right focus on how good God is to us, even though our lives are so far from ideal and perfect right now. Let's not obsess over the hardness of the curse when there is infinitely greater things in our God to behold. Very quickly, in our hearts, it seems obvious, doesn't seem to need defining, 
but I think it's God's press to say, make sure your singing and your thankfulness is coming genuinely from your heart. So one of the great dangers of singing familiar lyrics is to, to mindlessly sing them just from rote. Our mouths can move and our brains can be somewhere entirely different. So part of what songs do is unite all of us to say the same things to God, but we still need to take personal ownership to say those things. They should come from our hearts and not simply because that's what everybody else is singing at the moment. We actually intentionally break our song singing up in our services, uh, more so usually than today, in order to try and keep those singing times fresh and focused. And then finally, but certainly not least, to God. That our thankfulness and our thankful singing is not only about where it comes from our hearts, but where it goes to or where it's directed. Much like prayer, our singing is to be focused on and primarily directed to God, about God, and for God. Not to ourselves, not about us, and not primarily for us. It is giving that worship due him to him. So, in the few remaining minutes we have, why singing? Like God could have chosen, dramatize, or act all these things out. Write essays about them. Do interpretive dance. Draw them. Uh, all kinds of ways. But one of the ways he chose for us to express ourselves and to express the word is to sing them to each other and to sing them to him. Singing is central to man's relationship with God, uh, both now and for all of eternity. It's a pivotal way that we express ourselves to him and commune with him. So, simple truths, but amazing. God loves for his people to sing. Over and over, dozens and dozens and dozens of times, God exhorts us to sing. All kinds of other things that go with that. Sing all the earth, sing with all of your heart, sing loudly, but singing. Um, secondly, God loves to hear our singing, and as we noted at the beginning, the quality doesn't seem to matter to him at all. We need to be careful. We do not base how much or how loudly or how zealously we sing on our ability, vocally or instrumentally. Don't base it on your ability. Base it on your God. Don't measure your singing by the sound that comes out of your mouth, but by the sincerity of your heart that brought those words there. Bert Parsons, if you want to know the health of a church, listen to it. And notice he doesn't say anything about the quality of the music. Listen to the theology of their songs. And then listen to the passion with which they sing them. And maybe most stunningly under singing is that God too loves to sing. We don't have a ton of scriptures that tell us this. But he lets us peek behind the curtain of eternity for just a glimpse here. That he loves to do many things. He's a God who is mighty to save to rejoice over us with gladness, to quiet us with his love, all beautiful promises, and to exalt over us with loud singing. What does that sound like? I can't wait. I can't wait to hear God singing loudly 
perhaps the new heavens and the new earth shake with the glory of his singing. I don't think he sings about how great we are. I think he's singing joyously of his joy and delight in restoring us to intimate relationship and fellowship with him. That we get to enjoy him. And that stirs God's heart to sing with exhilaration over that. We've never heard a choir the size of what heaven will be. Singing praises to him. Him singing perhaps antiphonally back to us like we sang this morning. How beautiful, how glorious that's going to be. And what we're doing now on earth is simply practice, dress rehearsal, preparation for that. Okay, let's land this trying to just bring a few applications quickly. And then let's sing some more. I think, and, and I have very limited, extremely limited perspective, that First Street Bible Church is a strong singing church. But let me say with that, several things come to mind as I think about that. Number one, we must not be proud of our singing. Whether that's your voice and your ability that God has given you, or us as a whole congregation. It's something the world prizes. It's something the world seeks after. It's something the world rewards deeply. But the glory always belongs to our God. May we never boast in our singing, beautiful as it may be in Christ, but may we always and only boast in Christ crucified, risen, and in all of us and our singing. Secondly, there's always room to grow and mature. And I want to just bring some questions to you that I hope will stir your own thinking. What do I do with this text today in my own life? Perhaps it's just growing, realizing more vividly why God wants us to sing, what God wants us to sing, and how God wants us to sing. Maybe this just moves the importance of singing up a notch for us in importance. Maybe it changes what music you're listening to, what your diet of music throughout a week is, what you're singing throughout the week, whether they are praises to our God or they are of the world or of the devil. Maybe it moves you to be more thankful in your singing, to seek with every song, to have it be expressed with thanksgiving. Third thought, reflecting on this, there are individuals among us who are not really singing on Sunday mornings. You either don't move your lips at all, or you look like it's the last thing on earth you want to do. And that's not okay, not according to Colossians 3.16. It's not okay. God has called us here. And so I just want to urge you, if you're a non-singer, to ask God to give you the courage, the conviction, and the thankfulness to him to sing. God calls all he redeems to sing. There isn't going to be a group in heaven that sits over here and does other stuff while those who like to sing, sing. We're all together. But, Right now, you cannot ride on the coattails of this congregation, and you cannot ride on the coattails of the people around you or your spouse or whoever it might be. You, individually, will answer to God for how you sang to him throughout your life, in private 
and in public. And finally, it's very possible that there are people here every Sunday who are singing, maybe loudly, beautifully, but for the wrong reasons or in the wrong way. Before you can be a singer that's honoring to God, you have to recognize you're a sinner who needs needs to repent, trusting completely in Christ, the necessity of him, the sufficiency of his work, of his death and resurrection to save you. Just like we saw last Sunday as Chad opened up Philippians 3 to us, everything we do that's apart from Christ, that's without Christ in us and us in him is ultimately worthless to God. You can think it's good all you want, but what you think, how you assess it, doesn't matter a bit when you stand before God. It will be his judgment and his assessment. Non-believers can sing Christ-filled songs beautifully and give us goosebumps over them. And we can give them standing ovations. And yet they may spend eternity in hell. Churches that don't preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ may have incredible musicians that produce incredible music. And it will never be a part of heaven's ensemble of beautiful music. Philippians 3, listen to what Paul says here from his own life. I count everything. For him, it was his birth and his actions. For us, it can be church attendance and singing and giving and doing all these things. I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In fact, because of him or for his sake, I've suffered the loss or the letting go of all things. I consider all that rubbish, useless, wasted years of my life in order that now I may gain Christ and be found in him. And now this critical line, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or comes from how well I think I'm pleasing God, including with my singing. But it comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he goes on to say, I long to just know him, the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him even unto his death that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. The only way we will one day be resurrected to eternal life in heaven is if we are repenting of our sin and trusting daily in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. We sing because he has saved us by his grace, not so we hope he will save us one day by our works or by our singing. We need Jesus' righteousness, even in our singing, to truly be able to honor him. But oh, when he gives us to us, gives it to us, people of God, let's sing. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture, this call from you today to sing, and I pray you will all make us singers with songs that delight and please and honor and exalt you. May our lives be more a song to you. For your glory's sake we ask. Amen.